There are a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL draft this year. My name is Danny Kelly, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Heifetz, Ben Solak, and Craig Borlbeck. We cover trades, free agency, and the draft, obviously. We'll tell you about everything, including which quarterbacks are good, which quarterbacks are not as good, and which quarterbacks are just Kirk Cousins. Search the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, recording late after the Celtics lost to the Lakers without Anthony Davis and LeBron James. Okay, I was going to start with the Patriots hiring their new offensive coordinator, Alex Van Pelt, but that was such a brutal loss. We'll start there. We will get to Alex Van Pelt in a second here. I'm also going to give you my Friday thoughts, trying out a new thing here where I have a bunch of leftover things that I wanted to get to. So I'm going to get to them all, some fun ones, some takes, some thoughts. We'll get to that later. I have one on the Sox, and it seems even more timely now that the Orioles have traded for Corbin Burns. So the division continues to get better, and the Red Sox continue to do absolutely nothing, but I'll save that for my Friday thoughts. Okay. So just an embarrassing loss for the Celts. No LeBron, as we mentioned. No Anthony Davis. LeBron's out there cutting his nails on the bench, which I don't know what's going on with that. That was disgusting. If you have a teammate out there cutting his nails on the bench, that's gross. But anyway, so they haven't really had games like this this season. And even Jalen Brown said after the game that we haven't had an experience like this this season. Last year, they had a few. You think back to that Thunder game. Remember, they got blown out 150 to 17. That was embarrassing. But I can't imagine that the Celtics are going to have a worse loss in this all season long. And if they do, then we're talking about an issue because it happens once. Okay, you can kind of say what the hell was going on, but there was a lack of effort. There was a lack of paying attention to detail. And I get it like we see this in the NBA sometimes where teams naturally let go of the rope when other teams are without their stars. But there's just not really an excuse for this game tonight. This is a lack of effort that John Henry and Red Sox ownership would salute. They really, the Celtics, did not give a shit in this game. Like John Henry and the Red Sox ownership group does not care about their baseball team. They don't give a shit about their baseball team. It looked like maybe John Henry gave them a pregame speech or something along those lines. Like, hey guys, this is what you want to do. This is how you want to play if you don't want to give a shit. Like we've done all offseason. That's what it felt like to me. There was no effort, no attention to detail whatsoever. One play that stuck out to me, It's this is a lack of attention to detail. 
It's 99 to 90. Like the Celtics had multiple chances to just get back in this game and win it, like play awful throughout the game and still win. It's 99 to 90 and Porzingis takes a top of the key three. And so if he's at the top of the key, that means somebody else on the wing has to sprint back because Porzingis, if he's at the top of the key, you need somebody else to get back on defense when he takes that shot. Nobody did. So Jackson Hayes runs right to the rim and gets two free throws as Derek White tried to block him from behind. That's paying attention to detail, right? And the Celtics clearly didn't. This floor balance issue has become a thing in a couple of these losses recently. I'll get to that in a second. And the effort thing. All you have to do is look at the first half numbers to illustrate how bad the effort was. 11 offensive rebounds for the Lakers. They are last in the NBA in offensive rebounds per game. The Hawks lead the league at 13.1. The Lakers had 11 in the first half. So they were on pace for 22. So almost nine more than the team that is leading the NBA. Okay. Now they cleaned it up a little bit in the second half, but the damage had already been done. And this has now become an issue for the Celtics. They gave up 19 to Indiana. 19. Okay. And as we mentioned in this game tonight, you give up 11 in the first half. And then you look at the fact that in this game or on the season, the Celtics are giving up 11.3 offensive rebounds per game, 26 in the NBA. Now, I mentioned this after the game the other night that this is going to become a thing. If you continue to have these games where you give up offensive rebounds, because you're such a good team, teams are going to say, hey, this is a strategy that may work against the Celtics. We saw the Lakers incorporate that tonight, especially in the first half. They're crashing the boards. They're getting themselves extra possessions. This is something that now other teams are going to start to do to the Celtics, unfortunately, because they've had a stretch here where they struggle getting defensive rebounds. Also, the Lakers don't take a lot of threes. They hit 13. And by the way, that offensive rebounding stuff that the Lakers were getting, that's just effort from the Celtics. Okay, that's effort. Then you look at the fact that the Lakers don't take threes, okay? They hit 13 threes in the first, or they hit 13 threes in the first half of this game. The Celtics lead the league at 16.2. They hit 13 in the first half. The Lakers average 11.2 makes per game from three-point territory, which is 28th. They finish with 19 makes, so almost three more than the Celtics hit on the season. And this is a team that is not good at shooting threes. And you had guys out of the lineup, Davis, that doesn't take threes. LeBron, he was shooting the three better at the beginning of the season, not anymore. But So they hit 52.8% of their threes. Get them off the three-point line. See, this is what happens when you play an undermanned team. They're going to come up with David's strategies. So that is, let's crash the glass and let's jack up a ton of threes. As a Celtics team, you have to be aware of this. The Lakers couldn't hit anything from two-point territory. But the Celtics did a poor job of sort of executing and adjusting to what the Lakers were doing. The scouting report changes when LeBron and Davis weren't out there. You saw very early in the game. We're all watching. Hey, they're just going to try to jack up threes, crash the glass. That's how they're going to try to win. The Celtics never matched their effort, right? They kept getting offensive rebounds. Another issue that is creeping up for the Celtics, turnovers. If you look at the season, the Jazz have the most turnovers per game in the NBA at 15.9. The Celtics, if you look at them in this game tonight, they had nine in the first quarter, 12 in the first half. Okay, the Celtics on the season are six, so they only turn the ball over 12.5 times per game, 12 in the first half, nine in the first quarter alone. So they, they were on pace in this game to turn the ball over way more than anybody does in the NBA. And one of the other things you look at this is if you look at the Celtics 
first half, they had a 92 offensive rating because they had 46 points in 50 possessions. So if you incorporate the turnovers there, 24% of their possessions, they were turning the basketball over on, right? Utah is at what? 15.6% of the season. And if you look at it from a Celtics perspective in this game, and you try to figure out, well, what's going wrong with the offense? The problem with the offense is you're turning the basketball over almost on what? Like a fourth year possessions. It's just not good enough, right? <laughs> when you're talking about turning the basketball over that frequently, you just can't survive that way. Now, they did clean that up in the second half. But like we say, with the offensive rebounding, the damage was done. Another thing, the Celtics were 15 of 20 in the restricted area. And if you look at it on the season, so that's 75% really good. The Bucs lead the league at 71%, okay? No team takes fewer than 20 attempts per game in the restricted area. So why so few attempts? Drive and get to the basket. The Lakers do not have good defensive personnel. They really don't. Like their best defensive player, Anthony Davis, isn't playing. So I don't understand why you're not driving to the basket in this game. Just overwhelm them with your physicality. You're a big, long team that I know you don't want to live at the free throw line, but you easily could have in this game tonight. You look at the fact that the Celtics only took seven free throws in this game, okay? No team takes fewer than 19. The Celtics took seven. Tatum took two, and Jalen didn't take a free throw. Not one in the entire game. This is a guy that was just named to the All-Star game. He is a 6'7 wing that is absolutely jacked up. He took zero free throws. Zero. We gave him praise the other night for taking a bunch of free throws against Indiana. He took zero free throws in this game tonight, okay? And you start to think about some of this stuff now that has been going on with Jalen. He has some stinkers against good teams. And the Lakers, that is not a good team. But you think to the Clippers game where he has a poor performance. You think about the Nuggets game where he's 6 of 19, right? But these two guys, Tatum and Jalen, to not get to the free throw line, it's sort of aggravating in a game like this. Because of the fact that they didn't have good defenders out there, and at least, like, put your physicality into the game. Now, one shot that really irritated me in this game in particular, there was a lot, but you think about it, it's 77-71. The crowd is starting to get into the game after Tatum gets the jump ball, right? Where he forces the jump ball, the crowd's going nuts, they're into it. What happens right after that? Tatum just takes a three without any passes. It's like, Move the ball, get a good shot, right? You don't need to take that three right now. You can get that shot that he took a wing three step back of the step back variety. You can get that at any point during the shot clock and Tatum decides, hey, you know what, guys? I'm going to take this three right now. That's hero ball, man. Move the ball and get a good shot. And you know what? If there's eight seconds left on the shot clock, go ahead and take that, right? Because that means you're not getting anything good from the offensive possession. In that particular case... At least try to do something offensively before you jack up a shot like that. So to me, it's plays like that that are just like, man, what are you guys doing out there tonight, right? And for whatever reason, for for whatever reason, I should say, the floor spacing, it gets screwed up because it feels like to me when the Celtics fall behind in these games, like we saw against the Clippers and like we saw in this game against the Lakers, they just double down and try to play the math game and say, hey, we got to shoot ourselves back into this with threes. So what happens in those particular games is the Celtics jack up these threes, their floor spacing gets fucked up. And look, I'm all for taking a ton of threes, but it's just they're forcing bad threes, so they're missing a lot of these because they're trying to chase the points, right? It's like when you gamble and you go down, you're like, oh, I'm going to win this one or I'm going to win the next one. The Celtics are chasing points rather than playing 
the right way because they do generate a lot of good threes, but they definitely didn't do this in this game tonight against the Lakers. They're settling. So what happens when you do that is you're essentially giving up a ton of easy opportunities in transition, right? So what happens in these losses, like the Celtics, they took what? Seven free throws in this game. And if you look at that Clippers game, the Celtics took 43s and they only hit 10 of them. Okay. So now that's slightly below their season average on threes. They take over 42 per game. But the point being is naturally they only took 16 free throws. Okay. And what happens is like in this game against the Lakers, we saw the same thing with the Clippers when they're chasing points, they're jacking up threes. And what that leads to is fast break points. So the Clippers in that game the other night on Saturday had 26 fast break points. The Raptors lead the league at 18.1. So almost eight more than the team that's leading the NBA. The Jazz give up 18, the most in the league. So they're eight points worse than that are the Celtics. You look at tonight, the Lakers take 20, or excuse me, 21 fast break points for the Lakers. Like I said, the league leaders at 18.1 in Toronto. And the Celtics, again, they took 48 threes. They hit just 16, 33.3%. So the floor spacing is bad. When the Celtics fall behind, they just can't get into their heads that, hey, we can't just double down and jack up threes. And this is not, this is not an indictment on threes. Okay, I want them to take a lot of threes, but there are certain times during the game where it feels like, hey, when they fall behind, their offense is going to shit, right? So they're not running good stuff offensively when we've seen this team, when they're playing well offensively, the ball is humming around. They're one of the best offensive teams in the league. So they can't just chase points the way they do when they fall behind. It's almost as like they're uncomfortable playing from behind. I mean, we talked about this last week with Lamar Jackson when they fell behind by a score against the Kansas City Chiefs, and then two scores. He felt uncomfortable. It feels like the Celtics are uncomfortable when they fall behind. And that's something I just don't understand. Like you just, that's like a mentally tough thing. You got to be tougher than that, fight back and get it back one possession at a time and definitely tighten up on defense because they certainly didn't do that, right? Random note, I didn't know why Brissett didn't get any burn until garbage time because this team was full of wings. But anyway, so offensive rebounds for the Lakers, threes you knew that they were going to try to do something different without LeBron and Davis you never adjusted to that I mean I don't know how many Austin Reeves threes were open like I said I think the first four were in my opinion but you look at it threes turnovers fast break points all these stuff all these things add up right now you look at this too I look at the two all-stars right where Jalen just got announced an all-star tonight Tatum's an all-star you have a super max player and you got another guy that's about to be a super max player. Like the players have got to be better in these situations. You got to be better as leaders too. Like you got to respond to these situations. And another thing I would mention is Porzingis was one of seven from deep. He took some bad fourth quarter threes. And you know how much I love Porzingis. But he took eight twos and he hit six of them. Just get in the post, get to the free throw line. And this is what Porzingis is here for. Get you out of ruts offensively. And they didn't go to that nearly enough. And You got to put some of it on Porzingis because he's just hanging around the three-point line. He's just as guilty as everybody else jacking up threes, right? So get the ball in the post or get the ball at the free throw line to get yourself out of these ruts. So they have got to figure this out in terms of essentially what we're going to do when we fall behind in games. You got to be tougher than that because it's going to happen in the postseason. You can't just revert back to jacking up threes. And again, it's not even just about the threes. It's the quality of threes. It's, hey, let's come down the court and jack one up within the first eight seconds because of the shot clock. They took a lot of bad shots in this game tonight. A lot of bad shots. Okay, the other thing I would mention is 
If I was Joe, I may have just rolled with the bench guys more. Because Pritchard was awesome. He was a plus 13 in eight minutes, or excuse me, in eight points. Hauser was awesome, 17 points. He was a plus six. He had five threes. He was awesome in this game. Kata had seven and seven. He was a plus seven in 13 minutes. So you could have sent a message. You look at the starters. Tatum minus 12. Porzingis minus 22. Drew minus nine. I thought he gave some effort on the defensive end of the floor. White minus 19. Jalen minus 20. Okay. So I would have given those bench guys an opportunity because... We saw them come in early in the third quarter. They actually gave this team a spark. The same thing happened in the first half as well, where they gave them a spark. I would have rode those guys longer because you weren't getting anything from your starters, right? And you also look at the fact that someone had to put out the Reeves fire. He had 31 points. We mentioned the open threes that he was getting, but this continues to happen where it's like Kawhi the other night, he had the 26 and 29 minutes. Like you got to shut that down, right? Shea, the Celtics eventually did late in that game. Now he had 36, but eventually Tatum went on him. And then the fact that, you're just getting roasted by D'Angelo Russell. <laughs> the guy had 14 assists. He's tearing apart your defense. So on that side of the floor, that is not a coaching thing. That's a player thing. You guys have got to be better than that. And you got to bring the necessary effort. So I think all the things that you look at in this game, when we look at all the things we mentioned, we look, mentioned the turnovers. Okay, that's lack of attention to detail. That's making bad passes, making bad choices. That's being not prepared, right? Not taking your opponent seriously. The offensive rebounds that the Lakers got, that's an effort thing. Not getting out to shooters, especially Austin Reeves, that's lack of effort, that's lack of discipline. The fast break points, that is, first of all, you're taking bad shots, so your floor spacing is fucked up, but it's also laziness not getting back on defense, and it's not paying attention to detail. So I hope that they respond in a major way against Memphis on Sunday, and hopefully this is a wake-up call, but that was tough to watch, and we have not seen any games like this, quite frankly. Now, I thought they played very poorly in the second half against Indiana. They've had some weird losses. The Charlotte loss comes to mind. But overall, they haven't had a lot of these. Where, yeah, they've had bad shooting nights or they've had struggles with turnovers at certain points. Like, that that type of stuff's going to happen throughout an NBA season. But for all this stuff to happen on the same night, it's just inexcusable. And I would hope, and I hope they don't have another loss like this because it's tough to watch. Now, look, I don't want to do anything seriously. I don't think, like, what's going to happen is you're going to hear... People on the talking head shows say like, oh, this this tells you something about the Celtics. They don't have them. I don't believe any of that. Okay, I believe they had a really bad night, but it's disappointing to me that they didn't find a way to respond and win this because midway through the fourth quarter, I going into halftime, I thought they'd win. At the end of the third quarter, I thought, okay, you're allowing them to stay in this game or be in control of this game. Midway through the fourth quarter, I still thought they were going to win. Okay, and they didn't finish the job. And that's the disappointing thing to me is as poorly as you played, all you had to do really essentially was string together eight good minutes of basketball and you would have beat this team. And you didn't have the discipline to do it and you didn't bring the necessary effort to do it. And to me, that's disappointing. But I'm not going to go hyperbolic here and say this identifies any sort of character issue with this team or anything along those lines. All right, let's get to the Pats. They're hiring Alex Van Pelt as their offensive coordinator. So This was the opposite of the special team search, which we'll talk about later when I get to my Friday thoughts. They had slightly, I feel like for the offensive coordinator position, they had slightly under 200 candidates, it felt like, for the job. And it's just really surprising that it's not Nick Cayley. It felt like it was going to be Nick Cayley the whole time. So Alex Van Pelt must have had like the greatest interview in the history of sports because they interviewed so many guys, it felt like Kaylee was their guy. And then all of a sudden, Van Pelt, we didn't even know, was part of the search. He lands the gig. 
So I talked to someone in Cleveland that told me he was really good with people, which would add up considering I just basically assumed he has the great he had the greatest interview of all time. One thing about him is he's 53, which we talked about that the coaching staff was relatively young. When you start to think about Nick Cayley has only been in the NFL since 2015 and he had joined the staff. He's 41 and he's only worked for the Patriots and the Rams. Van Pelt has been in the NFL since 06. The Bills, the Bucks, the Packers, the Bengals, and the Browns, and now here. So he's been all over the place. Now, he's not been an offensive coordinator since a while back when he was with Buffalo. This is like 2009. So if you look at Van Pelt's resume, coached under Steven, uh, Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland, of course, the past few years, Stefanski did handle the play calling duties. But worth noting, Stefanski had COVID for one of the Browns' playoff games against the Steelers back in 2020. And the Browns put up 48 points with Van Pelt calling the game. So Baker in that game threw for 263, a 115.2 rating in terms of his passer rating. And they ran for 127 yards in that game as well. So if you want to look at his play calling game, I mean, he's really good at that one. But anyway, so Van Pelt has been all over the place, as we mentioned. He has been the quarterback's coach for Aaron Rodgers. I'm not saying that's the reason Aaron Rodgers won one of his MVPs, but Van Pelt was there for that. But anyway, so when you've been in the league this long... You have a lot of experience with different types of coaching staffs and different players, of course. But the Kaylee thing from the beginning, I told you the two years with McVay really intrigued me, okay? So I'll get back to that in a second. But if you do look at the Browns, they were 10th in points this past season, and they were 14th in Stefanski's and what would be Van Pelt's first year in Cleveland as well. And they were 10th this year without Nick Chubb, which is pretty impressive. Now, if you look at their numbers, they were middle of the road in terms of their play action rate with Deshaun Watson. Then they went nuts with Joe Flacco. They went all the way up to 32.9% of his dropbacks came via play action, which was the second highest rate in the NFL because we know what Flacco wants to do. He wants to throw the ball down the field. 12.6 yards per attempt out of play action this past season for Flacco, first in the NFL. The intended air yards per attempt, Watson was fifth and Flacco was third. So even though he has a West Coast background in terms of his offense, we saw they played to the strength of the quarterback. Hey, let's throw the ball down the field. Okay, let's take some shots down the field because this is what especially Flacco does best. And when they had Nick Chubb last season for the whole year, they were six in rushing yards. So they take advantage of their personnel. And then you look at a guy like David Njoku with Flacco, he started to be utilized more. So after they put Flacco as their starting quarterback, five games of 90 yards, zero before that. So I do wonder partially, hey, was that Flacco or was that telling you more about Watson as a player? Like, hey, the team was scheming things up for Njoku because like some of Watson's numbers are similar in terms of, as we mentioned, the intended air yards. And he just wasn't taking the shots to Njoku. And the coaching staff was drawing these plays up for Njoku. And Watson just wasn't taking advantage of it. So that could be a plus four. Van Pelt, and of course, Stefanski as well. So the reality is we don't know for sure one way or another if he's going to be really good at this job because he hasn't really done it, right? I mean, he did it briefly with Buffalo, and recently he had a couple of games where he's calling plays. But if you do look through like the history of the NFL, Mike, or recent history, I should say, Mike McDaniel, nobody knew if he was going to be good or not. He was not the play caller in San Francisco. Arthur Smith was awesome as a coordinator in Tennessee, but then when he was the coordinator or the play caller in Atlanta as the head coach, he wasn't good. So there's no guarantee one way or the other. I do like this that the one thing I really do like about this, okay, is it was Mayo's choice, right? Where if you think about it, he impressed him to the point where he felt like he needed to hire this guy. So I hope he came in with a plan 
for both May and Daniels, right? Because he's going to have to draft one of these guys. Daniels is the one that I think will be the bigger question mark because you're going to have to design things in terms of the quarterback run game. I do want to get to something else in my Friday thoughts about this in a little bit, but you can, can you design a good run game? Because with a quarterback that you need to feature in this, because they haven't had a ton of quarterbacks like that. I guess they had it with Watson. I'm thinking about the Cleveland situations. You have Baker, you have Flacco, you have Watson, but Watson hasn't really even played that much as a member of the Cleveland Browns. So that's something that certainly they're going to have to find a way to do if Daniels is the guy. And then if you look at it in terms of the play action pass game, that's something that is definitely a positive. But I like the fact that this is Mayo's guy and the fact that this guy didn't have any relation with the Patriots or any relationships really with the Patriots in terms of there's no ties. And Mayo just liked him. I like that part of it. Now, he was huge in game planning, but and obviously he's let go in Cleveland. So you're starting to figure out, well, what's going on there? Because recently at the end of the season, Alex Van Pelt complimented Kevin Stefanski and talked about how good of a job he's done. So you have to think that part of it is he wanted to be the play caller, right? He wanted to be more involved when it came to that. The one thing I do wonder about, and this is circling back to Kaylee, I thought they wanted somebody from the McVay Shanahan tree. Now, like I said, I like the fact that Mayo picked his guy. Like this is Mayo's guy. I do like that. But I was excited about the McVay Shanahan tree, right? right? Where now they've pivoted. Now, this does show that Mayo makes strong decisions, and we'll see, but I just think about all these guys that came off the Shanahan-McVay tree. Bobby Slowick, great job with the Texans. Of course, Mike McDaniel, great job with Miami, came off the Shanahan tree. Matt LaFleur worked with both Shanahan and McVay. I just felt like you wanted that type of offense, a guy that can run that type of offense for this organization going forward. I was all in on that plan. I really like the Kaylee idea. Now, I'm open to Van Pelt. I hope that he's really good at his job because I want the Patriots to be good again, right? Like we all do. And I want to see how he handles a young rookie quarterback. But I was really all in on the McVay-Shanahan offense. Like I thought this would be a smart thing for the Patriots to do after you basically have been switching up your offense the past few years. You have McDaniel's system. Then you go to Patricia. You try the Shanahan thing, but you didn't have anybody that could run the Shanahan thing with Patricia. You go back to like, I don't know, a hybrid of the two. Then this past season, it's Bill O'Brien's system. And I thought, okay, come in with an idea of the modern offense because the Shanahan McVay offense is now all over the NFL. It's working for so many different organizations. I just wanted to see it with Nick Haley. Now, the good thing is like this Browns offense has been good and he's been around Stefanski for a couple of years now. So you hope that helps out. But man, I was I was excited. I really was excited about bringing in somebody from the McVay tree and Look, I may sit back and at in the middle of next season and say, hey, Jaden Daniels or Drake May is playing awesome for the Patriots. Van Pelt is doing an outstanding job and I'll be happy. But I just feel like I loved the idea of going with Nick Cayley, bringing him back here and seeing what he learned from Sean McVay and implementing that into the offense. So I'm not like going to act like I'm super disappointed with this hire. I'm pissed about this hire. I'm not going to act that way. We don't know if Van Pelt's going to be good or not. He definitely has a resume that tells you that he could, and he definitely worked with a guy, Kevin Stefanski, that is a really smart, intelligent offensive mind. So maybe he can take what he learned with Stefanski like Kaylee has learned from McVay. I was just excited about the Kaylee McVay thing. But here we are in the Patriots. At least they have an offensive coordinator and they have a special teams coordinator. We'll get to him later. So a lot more to get into. Coming up next though. So I have my Friday thoughts. New thing we're trying out where... I just got a bunch of thoughts that I haven't gotten to so far this week, so we'll hit that next. Happy Super Bowl to all who celebrate from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. 
If you're like me, Super Bowl Sunday is all about scoring the best seat on the couch, grabbing your favorite football snacks, and placing some super bets. And I'm looking at one of these specials. So if you look at this, plus 160 for Purdy and Mahomes to combine for 50 rushing yards. I like that for plus 160. Purdy had 48 in the conference championship game. Mahomes had just 15 last week, but that would, of course, get it done. And then you start to think about the fact that Mahomes did have 41 against the Dolphins. So one of these guys is going to have a couple of big scrambles. Maybe they both do. So I love that. 50 rushing yards from both quarterbacks at plus 160. FanDuel has so many ways for you to end the season with a W or two or three. Not only can you bet on who will win Super Bowl 58, but FanDuel also has bets for which players will score a touchdown, how many points will be scored, and so much more. If you're new to FanDuel, join today and you'll get $200 in bonus bets when you win your first $5 bet. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Pike to sign up. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I thought I'd try something new out because, of course, it is going to be Friday. So these are my Friday thoughts. Most of you will be listening to this podcast at some point on Friday. So basically the idea of this is I'm going to rip through some things that we haven't talked about yet or that I have a strong take on and some fun things I want to put in here as well. But most of you... We'll get to listen to this on Friday. We think about Friday. Friday is a fun day, so I wanted to have some fun with this. Okay, so let's start off with this. The first one is Patriots related, and I just found this whole coaching search insane. We came into it with Jim Harbaugh, Pete Carroll, Bill Belichick, Mike Vrabel, and Ben Johnson, who was the hottest coordinator out there. Only one gets hired, and it's Jim Harbaugh. That's the only guy. I would have loved to see what FanDuel would have had for a parlay, if you could parlay, all three of Rabel, Belichick, and Ben Johnson would not be head coaches. I'm sure the odds would be insane. That'd be fun if we could go back and find that out. But anyway, so Washington, of course, the last team to fill its spot, they go with Dan Quinn. We all have great memories of Dan Quinn here locally. The 28-3 comeback, of course, Dan Quinn was the coach on the other side for the Atlanta Falcons. They completely mismanaged the clock. He did make a Super Bowl, though, so okay, there's that. But after Kyle Shanahan left for San Francisco, and by the way, Shanahan is now going to his second Super Bowl since taking that job, it seems like things went south in Atlanta. And it seems like Kyle Shanahan deserves more credit for what happened in Atlanta than Dan Quinn, especially if you look at Dan Quinn's record. Now, the first year post-Shanahan, they finished 10-6, and and then they lost to Philly in the postseason. But then 7-9, and seven and nine and zero and five and he was fired so matt ryan had his best season with kyle shanahan and he was pretty good after that but he turned back into matt ryan who's a pretty good quarterback for a good chunk of what i would say 12 years or so he was a pretty good quarterback and one year he was outstanding it was with kyle shanahan so it's interesting to me that you look at it from the washington perspective and dan quinn is the guy that they land on when it's like well When he was a good coach, he had the best offensive coordinator in the NFL. And now Kyle Shanahan has developed into hands down, just flat out one of the best coaches in the league. So the interesting 
portion of this to me, the more important thing for Washington is more about the offensive side of the football and developing either Drake May or Drayden Daniels. So I thought that was an odd hire, quite frankly. But the other angle to this here, there's two. One of them is Bill Belichick. So Diana Rossini reported that Belichick was being considered for the job. The commander spoke with him, and he had some support from some decision makers. So we thought this whole time it was Atlanta or bust, but apparently Washington was a consideration for Bill. Now, who knows how far this really went, but I think the Kraft smear campaign really hurt Bill Belichick in this process, where the Wickersham article that we've referenced multiple times didn't help him. That's the article that, of course, did not portray Bill well. And there was an article in The Athletic, Chad Graff had it, where he mentions in the article that under Belichick, very few in the organization had the sway to even have small suggestions to the head coach. Scouts spent years getting to know prospects, but were quickly overruled by Belichick once he began his draft prep. Prep, rather. Now, we don't know for a fact if it was the Crafts, but we do know that it was the Crafts, Robert Kraft in particular, that said after Tom Brady won the Super Bowl that, hey, he told me Tom couldn't play anymore and he went out and won a fucking Super Bowl. And we know that there was all this stuff about Bill sort of how he's portrayed as sort of like a tyrant within the organization or a dictator, right? That's how Bill was portrayed. And so I do think that hurts, right? Because if you think about it, these articles are all coming out right after or right when Bill is going in for these interviews and he's getting crushed, right? And I think about what transpired in Atlanta where the concern there was Rich McKay and Terry Fontenot didn't want him. Arthur Blank wanted Bill Belichick and was very intrigued by Bill Belichick, but other people within the organization didn't want him. They felt like Bill would have too much power. Hmm, where are they getting that idea from? The Crafts, right? I'm not saying they directly talk to the Crafts, but it's sort of like what has been illustrated here with Bill Belichick over the years that he had all this power. And certainly he did have a ton of power, but it just felt like to me, and we can all agree that Bill, it's very difficult to bring him into a situation and just assume that he's not going to want the power, even if he, whatever he says, it's just tough to assume that, right? But I just feel like the Crafts wanted it out there that Bill was this guy that he would not listen to anybody else. They put that stuff out there, as we mentioned, about Mac and Brady, or I should say more about Brady. They also said stuff about Mac in terms of the offensive coordinators and all that, how Bill handled the Patricia situation. So all this stuff that has happened, it feels like, and if you look at what they've done organizationally, where basically Bill, now Cam Accord as well, we'll get to that in a second here, Nobody really has lost their job. It's just essentially Bill, and they are making it out to be like, this organization is going to be better without Bill, and let's tell all these stories to reporters all over the place about what Bill did and how Bill failed. And I do believe that smear campaign hurt Bill when it came to these jobs, and now we're finding out Washington was another team that was in consideration. Because the two guys that got jobs over Bill, Raheem Morris, who was a horrible coach at the first stop, and like I've said, I believe he deserves another opportunity, and Dan Quinn, who blew the biggest lead in Super Bowl history and did shit after Kyle Shanahan left. Those guys got jobs over Bill Belichick. And look, part of it is Bill's older, and part of it is, as we said, like it's true that he wants to have a lot of power and all that, but I do think part of it is the smear campaign that was put out there by the Crafts, where if you're another owner, especially a new owner in the case of Washington, you're looking at this and saying, hey, do I really want this? When this guy comes in, he's the greatest coach in the history of the league. We understand that. But he's going to have all this power within the organization. 
So they look at it from an owner perspective. Hey, I want control of my football team. It felt like Kraft at the end there was fighting for control of his football team. So I do think that all factors into this with Bill and why Bill didn't get a job. The other portion to this is Vrabel, where Vrabel didn't get a gig. So this is the main guy that we pointed to and said, hey, the Patriots should have at least looked and talked to Mike Vrabel before hiring Gerard Mayo, right? It's a guy that won three Super Bowls as a member of the Patriots. This is a guy that was just honored during the game this season. He's in the Patriots Hall of Fame, right? And it looks like you could have had him because nobody else hired Mike Vrabel. Now, the interesting thing here is Kraft could have looked at this and said, see, there are some issues with Mike Vrabel, right? Like now that Mike Vrabel doesn't have a job, like we were all complaining, like, why didn't you talk to Mike Vrabel? The Kraft could say, see, we told you guys there's issues with Mike Vrabel. And look, they love Mike Vrabel as a player and all that. But just the fact that he didn't get a coaching job, I do think for in some ways it's a win for Kraft. In some ways it's a loss for Kraft. Okay, so first, Vrabel is a very powerful figure where you had the A.J. Brown fiasco where he was right. He didn't want to trade A.J. Brown. He said prior to the draft, as long as I'm here, A.J. Brown is going to be here to paraphrase. We saw the video of him in the room when they made the selection. He was pissed off. So then John Robinson, the GM, who was with the Patriots organization again, he gets fired after that season. They bring in a new GM and ran Carthon. And it was sort of interesting because Derrick Henry, who is now going to be a free agent, so they're getting nothing. Like they could have traded him. He still, he finished the season out with the Titans. You think about the fact that they brought in an older receiver in DeAndre Hopkins. So Vrabel still wanted to win. The organization is clearly looking at it now like we need to take a step back. So it felt like they were not on the same page. So maybe that's part of it with Vrabel is maybe Vrabel, there is now this perception that he wants a ton of power. And I can see why he wants it based on what happened with the A.J. Brown situation. But anyway, so if you also look at the other part of this though, like that's the positive for the crafts is, hey, look, we, we, nobody else wanted Vrabel either, right? From a perception standpoint. But here's the interesting part about this. Let's look at the fear uh, that should come from the crafts with this. Vrabel is going to get a job next coaching cycle. I think anybody that says he won't is crazy. But I could say I thought that this year. I thought he would get a co coaching job, but I do truly believe he'll get a job next coaching cycle. And if you think about the teams, the Eagles, the Cowboys, and the Bills, we all know those coaches are vulnerable. Those are really good rosters. So if Vrabel goes somewhere and gets to a Super Bowl and gets Philly back on track or Dallas, Buffalo, whatever the case may be, right? You could have just had Vrabel if you were the Crafts because nobody else hired him this cycle, right? So when I just look at that, let's say the hypothetical here is one of those coaches loses their job. And then you look at it and you say, oh, we could have had that guy. And if Gerard Mayo, if we find out and knock on wood, I'm wrong about this because I don't want to be wrong about this. I want Gerard Mayo to be a great coach. And I believe he has a lot of elements to be a great coach. But the point with this is, if Gerard Mayo isn't good, and Vrabel now goes to the Eagles, the Cowboys, or the Bills after next season, and he puts them over the top, it's going to look bad. Because you could have had him, right? Based on what we would find out in this coaching cycle. The other person here that's affected is Bill Belichick. Vrabel is a better candidate for a job after next season than Bill. Because, first of all, the age. I mean, that's the glaring part about this. But let's say, as I was just saying, one of the three says, hey, we're done with our coats. The Bills with McDermott, the Eagles with Sirianni, or Mike McCarthy with the Cowboys. It could be more than that. But let's just say it's only one. Which guy are you hiring? Mike Vrabel or Bill Belichick? And we know like Ben Johnson, who didn't take a job, 
this particular cycle, he's going to be out there again. So I do think Vrabel going into next year's cycle also hurts Bill. So that's my first thought. I just thought this whole coaching thing was crazy. And I do truly believe that the Crafts hurt Bill in this whole process. And I'm going to stick to that. I really, truly believe. Now, Bill did some damage to himself, but I also think the Crafts didn't help him. I, I am still absolutely floored that Vrabel didn't get a coaching opportunity. Okay. The second thought. The Patriots hired Jeremy Springer to be their special teams coordinator. Okay. He was the second candidate that they interviewed after the Falcons special teams coordinator, Marquise Williams, who turned down the gigs. Uh, the gig, rather. Springer is 34. Okay. He has two years of NFL experience. He was at Arizona. Then he was at Marshall. And then he came to the NFL. He was Chase Blackburn's understudy with the Rams special teams unit. Callahan was all over this. He had the note right away when they hired this guy, even before then. The Rams special teams is ranked the 10th worst by DVOA since 1981. So they weren't just bad for this season. They were historically bad, like legitimately one of the worst special teams units in the history of the NFL. And this is the guy that the Patriots hired. My question is just this. Why didn't they interview more people? We have all these crazy job searches, teams, and the Patriots interviewing a million people. The Patriots did the same thing with different positions, right? But now with this one, they're like, hey, this is our guy. And look, he was second in command for a terrible unit. I'm not saying Springer can't be a great coach or anything along those lines. And maybe he gets it right. Like their kicker was ranked 29th and their other kicker, they had two kickers this past season. One was ranked 29th and one was ranked 31st. By the way, Chad Ryland was last. He hit just 64% of his field goals this past season. Okay, so maybe it was just a personnel thing, but the Patriots kicker was bad last year too. And obviously special teams has a lot more to do with than just the kicker. So it could be a personnel thing, but it's just crazy to me. The problem I have is the process. Why did you just land on this guy? Like you still have time. I don't know why Springer is just immediately the guy after where he's coming from and the lack of success they had there. Unbelievable to me that that's the hire. And look, like I said, like he could work out. I'm just, I'm not as shocked with the hiring, like the actual individual. I'm more shocked with the process. I mean, this is crazy. Okay. My next thought, the Sox situation is only going to get worse. So we've been over what the Sox haven't done this offseason. I was going to say we've been over what the Sox have done this offseason, but they haven't done anything, right? But Craig Council just let his contract expire with the Brewers. He went to free agency as a manager, which we don't ordinarily see, and he signed a five-year deal worth $40 million. Okay, that's $8 million per season. The math is pretty easy on that, right? Which, oh, by the way just so happens to be a major league record. The record before Craig Council was Joe Torrey, who his highest salary was $7.5 million. Craig Council is making $8 million this upcoming season. He has a 531 winning percentage, okay? His team made it to the championship series once. They just got upset in the postseason last year, okay? And look, this is not me taking shots at Council, but if a team is willing to pay $8 million to Craig Council, there's another manager that is now in the final year of his contract that has a 543 winning percentage, and his record would be better if he didn't have to deal with these crappy teams over the past few years. He's been to two championship series, and he's won this thing called the World Series. Now, I understand there is some baggage there, 
but we're so far removed from that. The Sox hired him in 2021. So basically he served, his suspension ended up being like two months. So he was back in baseball the following season. He apologized a million times for this situation in 2021. Teams are over that at this particular point in time, okay? And so there is going to be a team that wants Alex Cora. And if you look at this team, they're not going to be good enough when we're talking about the Red Sox. Even if, say, Alex Cora gets them to the playoffs, there's no guarantee that he would come back. How could you guarantee that, right? And this ownership group, Cora has praised in the past. They brought him back after the situation where he got the suspension. So he's praised them a lot. He's thanked them. But he's going to have a big market, right? And secondarily, when you look at it in terms of the ownership group, like I said, he's grateful to the ownership group. But how could you trust that they're going to try to win? Even in this hypothetical, if they make the playoffs next year, what tells you that the Red Sox next offseason are going to be aggressive about trying to put a winner around whatever their current club looks like? They just haven't proven it over the past couple of years. Like if we had this conversation a few years ago, yeah, you would think that they're going to try to win like three, four years ago. But now, after everything that has transpired over recent years, how could you believe that, right? I want Core to be here. I'll be abundantly clear about that. I think he's one of the best managers in the game. We've seen him outmanage guys like Kevin Cash in the postseason. We've seen it on multiple occasions, right? I mean, think about this team, what they did in the playoffs. They beat a Houston team that they only lost one game to in the series. That team had just won the World Series. They beat the Dodgers. They only lost one game there. The Yankees, they only lost one game. So, And that Rays team was really good in 2021 when the Red Sox beat them. So what's going to happen is there is going to be a team out there that's going to go higher than Craig Council's $8 million. Whether it's 8.5, whether it's $9 million, somebody's going to go higher than that per season rate that Craig Council's getting. And what ownership will do, what the Red Sox will do, is they'll label this as, hey, this is Alex Cora's choice to leave the Red Sox. He wanted to go somewhere else. But in reality, you are giving him the fifth best team talent-wise this upcoming season in the division, right? They're fifth in terms of their talent level right now. They're behind the Rays. They're behind the Orioles. They're behind the Jays. They're even behind the Yankees, right? And the Yankees added. They get this guy Juan Soto now. So when you look at it from that perspective, their whole idea is, well, he, well think about this. He has one year left in his contract. If you had been treating this like you were treating it when he first got here in 18 and you were going for it every year, you wouldn't worry about Alex Cora leaving. So this whole idea that they'll try to come up with like, oh, he decided to leave. It's his choice. It won't be. You forced him to make that choice by how you handled your organization, your decisions and how you've how, how you've dealt with this team over the past couple of years. It has consequences. This will be one of them. And I worry about the long term outlook with this organization. Now, I don't want to sound dramatic, but I do worry about this young core because the Sox have a ton of studs. Tristan Casas, of course, we've seen a ton of him. You know how much I like him. I've told you, I believe he's going to have a better season than Rafi. But in the pipeline, Marcelo Meyer, Roman Anthony, who has actually jumped Marcelo Meyer on SoxProspects.com. Our good buddy Ann Kundal that comes on the pod, his website, they have him as a higher prospect as Meyer. I told you, people within the organization like Roman Anthony more than Meyer. Anyway, that's a side note. Kyle Teal, who they just drafted, absolute stud. Miguel Blaze, people love him. I love William Abreu. Abreu is a guy that hits for power, and he also has plate discipline, okay? So I love both those things. If you have plate discipline, great. If you have power, great. You combine those two things together. That's why I love, absolutely love Tristan Casas so much. I really like Abreu. I'm probably higher on Abreu than most, but I really like Abreu. 
But the point being, they have a really good group coming up in the near future. Some of these guys, in the case of Casas, are already up, and we'll see some of these other guys this season. Now, I would trade Nick York just because there's no room for him in the middle infield going forward here. I would do that sooner rather than later because I think he's going to lose value the longer you wait because teams are going to realize, okay, he's pretty close to when he needs to play in Major League Baseball and you haven't promoted him yet. Okay, so I think that you got to do that sooner rather than later. But anyway, if you look at what the Cubs did last decade with Theo, they developed Chris Bryant, they developed Kyle Schwarber, Jorge Soler, Anthony Rizzo, they traded for and developed. And I'm not comparing the cores, but the pieces are there, right? Where they had a great homegrown group. You even think about the Red Sox with Mookie and Xander, to a lesser extent, the Benintendis of the world. So what did the Cubs do? They added Dexter Fowler. They added Jason Hayward. Even if Hayward didn't hit with the Cubs, he was a great defender. Ben Zobrist was like a finishing piece to that team. And they offered him a ton of money in free agency. John Lester, our old friend, went there for a ton of money. Jake Arrieta, they got him. They got him right, right? So the, the method, the formula was young talent and then spend big and make trades. The Red Sox did that with the team that ultimately won the World Series in 18. You had Chris Sale traded, David Price signed, and I know what we think of David Price, but nonetheless, I mean, David Price was a big part of the World Series team. They signed J.D. Martinez in 18. They traded for Craig Kimbrell. Rick Porcello was really good for them as well. So when you have a young core, you need to spend before they make big time money, right? If this was like five years ago, I would trust that the Red Sox would do this. They have proven it in the past. But I do worry that they're going to screw up with this young core where they're going to have all this talent. Are they going to be as invested as an ownership group to say, hey, look, we got a chance to win a World Series. We have a chance for a three to four year period to be competing for World Series championships. Are they going to be super invested like they haven't in the past? I mean, we just saw it yesterday and good for them. They're businessmen, the whole PGA live thing that they're now involved in. But are you going to be as invested with this Red Sox club? Or are you just going to give us lies like they've been lying to us for the past two years? So I do worry about that with this young core. I really do. And core is going to be gone. I mean, bottom line. I mean, how could he stay if this team is what it is from a talent perspective? And it seems like the ownership group doesn't care. All right. So my next thought is the Pats have to get back to being a dominant running team. And that's going to be part of the job now for new offensive coordinator Alex Van Pelt, who we talked about in the open. So if you look at the top six teams in Rush EPA, they all made the playoffs. The 49ers, the Bills, the Ravens, the Eagles, the Dolphins, and the Lions. The Patriots were just 22nd in Rush EPA. Now, clearly part of that is personnel, and they're going to need to improve there. They're going to need internal improvement, and they're going to need to scheme it up. That's going to be part of Ann Pelt's job, of course. And secondarily, like they need to bring back Michael Onwenu. When you have good personnel, you can't let those guys leave. But if you look at this, when the Patriots made the playoffs in 2021, just a couple of years ago, 7th in Rush EPA, 2018 Super Bowl team, they were 8th. The 2016 Super Bowl team, they dropped to 11th, but that was Brady's best season. I will continue to argue that. I think it's better than his 07 season. 2014, the Patriots were 5th in Rush EPA with Brady. So even with the greatest quarterback of all time, most of these years that the Patriots won a Super Bowl, Tom Brady had a really good running game. Now, there are certain times where you say Seattle in the Super Bowl, you say, hey, we're not running the football because they're stopping it every time we run it and you have to rely all on Brady. But the point being for the majority of the season, you had a run game that you could go to and that you could trust. So also part of this is about scheme, right? So a big thing is you're going to get Ramondre back 
And prior to the injury in the Chargers game, Ramondre got back to being himself again. If you look at the previous three games before the Chargers, 50 carries for 273 yards, that's 5.5 yards per carry. That's elite level production. That's the guy that we saw in 2022. So Ramondre is a stud. He'll get back to being that guy. But when we look at scheme, Ramondre was just 41st in rushing yards before contact last year. That means, and we talked about it throughout the season, he was getting met in the backfield a lot. McCaffrey, and who is on one of these great running teams, he was first in the NFL in terms of yards before contact. Now, he's the best running back in the NFL, but part of that is also scheme when you're talking about what Kyle Shanahan does. Okay, so if you look at these top six teams, the Niners, elite scheme with Shanahan, elite back with McCaffrey. So they have the best of both worlds. The Dolphins, elite scheme with McDaniel. Mostert and HN are awesome running backs too. The Lions, elite scheme with Ben Johnson. Gibbs is an elite talent, even though he was just his rookie season. That guy's dynamic. You also have Montgomery, who is not an elite talent, but the point being they had two pretty good running backs with an elite scheme. And personnel-wise, they had a great offensive line, arguably the best in the NFL. The other teams that we have in here, you have the Bills, really good back in James Cook, but you also have Josh Allen in the run game, where including the playoffs, 18 rushing touchdowns for Josh Allen. Okay, the Ravens, Lamar is arguably the greatest rushing quarterback of all time. The only other candidates would really be who? Michael Vick and Cam Newton. He's better than those guys as a runner. The Eagles, even though they fell apart, Jalen Hurts is really good in the running game, and he was banged up at the end of the season. So that running game with a quarterback that can be part of it, that's a cheat code, right? The teams we mentioned, the Bills, third overall in offensive EPA per play, just in terms of flat-out offensive EPA, not just running, but everything. They were third. The Ravens were sixth and the Eagles were seventh, even with the bad finish they had. So three of the top seven offenses had that element of the quarterback run. So this is partially why I continually get more and more excited about the idea of Jaden Daniels, where Jaden Daniels had the most rushing yards of any quarterback last year at the collegiate level. He also had the most 10-yard runs and the second most missed tackles forced. He is dynamic. So that dynamic element can elevate the offense. Now, it goes along with the play caller in Alex Van Pelt, and it goes along with the personnel as well. And look, you still need to have a great passing game. We totally understand that. But bringing in a guy that has that running element is just so exciting to me. And pairing him with Ramondre Stevenson has me excited. And like I said, there's a lot of things this team needs. They need a receiver, like a legitimate bona fide number one. They need to make sure their offensive line, bring back a when you develop some of these guys internally. But the idea of having a running quarterback with Ramondre Stevenson, that has me really excited. All right, so those are my Friday thoughts. Coming up next, we'll check in with producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, 
gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's up, man? How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. I liked your Friday takes. Okay, you like the Friday thoughts. Yeah. I, figured I, I figured I'd try this out. First Friday, I'm doing it. We'll see if we keep it going. I mean, maybe we mix this in every couple of weeks or so. Mm-hmm. But any of the takes that you want to revisit here or thoughts? Uh, it's hard to pick, Brian. They're all so good. But the, uh, I'll start with the first one. Um, I liked your coaching one. I think I had a couple thoughts on it. Firstly, that definitely, like you said, Belichick, biggest loser, obviously, is the age, et cetera. But I think Vrabel and Johnson might be might be good for them. I think I read that Johnson didn't even want that commander job. I mean, obviously, he's staying with the Lions, but like, thanks. Well, this is a bad job. That's why they got a bad coach, right? Um, but the one thing, Ryan, that I was thinking about as you were talking, get this. What what about Bill in terms of how he influences the hot seat during the season next year? Like, if you're an owner and your team is underperforming, pretty tantalizing if Bill's just sitting out there, kind of like Doc Rivers going to the Bucks, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a great point. It is a great point. And I think that also Vrabel being out there too. Right. Like now if you're Sirianni or Mike McCarthy or McDermott, you're kinda like, <laughs> Yeah, we dodged a bullet. Like we kept our jobs, but could one of these guys come take our jobs? Now I think it's a lot more difficult in the NFL to just like change the Agreed. coach midstream. Like you obviously have the interim coach that like we just saw with McDaniels, like Antonio Pierce had a ton of success and Good for him. He's getting an opportunity to coach that team going into next year. But I think it I don't think it's almost impossible to bring in a coach midseason. We'll see how it works out for Doc, but I think it's even going to be difficult for Doc there with Milwaukee. They just lost to Portland last night. I stayed I up that. to watch that game last night, and it was worth it. DeAndre Ayton is saying, this is what we do after the game. I'm like, dude, aren't you the same guy that couldn't go to a game a couple of weeks ago because it was icy? Yeah. So, no, I, I agree with you that like these interim coaches, at least they're in the building. They know the system. That makes more sense. But did you see, Brian, that uh, Jerry Jones came out and said, yeah, I could work with Bill. No problem. Maybe laying a little, uh, turning up the heat a little bit already on McCarthy. Yeah. And Jerry likes to have it out there that, you know, he's interested in all that different type of stuff. And I would say, though, to your point, it's like, OK, the likelihood that one of these three coaches is going to get fired after next season is pretty high. Or during mm-hmm. the season, like one of yeah. those teams is going to re- underachieve and they're going to say, hey, it's time to move on. And maybe that opens something up. But I think now, as I was mentioning, it's more likely that Vrabel gets that job than does Bill Belichick because Vrabel is significantly younger and he's won big games like he's won playoff games. He beat the Patriots in Foxborough, Brady's final game when he had the interception, his oh, final yeah. throw as a member of the Patriots. But oh, speaking of Brady, not to go on a digression here, but I was reminded of this today. So randomly... I heard that song, Hello by Adele, and I cannot hear that song. And this is nothing <laughs> against Adele. Like, I'm not like anti-Adele. Or I think she's very talented. But that song was used in the Brady return game when Ooh. they did like the, they were promoting the game. You know how they do those saying. little 30 mm-hmm. second things like NBC does <laughs> to promote that. the game. Yeah. And it's like Brady and Bill. And I'm like, I can't, I can never listen to that song ever again. <laughs> I can't hear it because 
all I think about is that promo and Brady playing for another team. <laughs> so it pisses me off. I can never yeah. listen to that song. Never. When I hear that song, I'm like triggered. I get legitimately angry. And it's nothing against Adele. Like I said, this is not me taking a shot at Adele. I want to be abundantly clear about that. But I cannot take that song. I, I get it, Brian. That was an emotional week, that Bucks game. Uh, brought up a lot of feels, for sure. Yeah. I know a lot um, of people had to mix in multiple adult sodas during that game to get through it. <laughs> oh, Brian, by the way, another another pass thing. You brought up uh, having a good run game and how all the best teams in the playoffs had a good run game. Um, I told, I agree, but I wonder, is do you think it does that correspond to just a good offensive line in general? Like, how is the, the run game influence like or at least correlate with like pass blocking and stuff like that because to me that that's what i noticed about this Patriots team is their line was just pathetic and it's like you improve the line they improve in the run game they improve everywhere else too yeah personnel and coaching right like they were good in 2021 as i mentioned earlier so it's yeah it's a personnel thing it's a coaching thing and that's going to be a big part of the job if and look they have guys that they drafted last year that maybe there's promise there in terms of the offensive line I think they have to do everything they possibly can to bring in Wenyu back. And I know that he's going to be yeah, somebody that a best. lot of teams are going to be interested in, but they need him back. I mean, look, they liked him at guard, and then he goes out to tackle. He was They were hesitant. We were talking to Mark Daniels about this. They were hesitant to do it because he's so good at guard, but it's like this is your best guy at right tackle. I just don't know how you let a player like that leave. He's so important for this line, and there's a lot of youth on that line. So I, I'm hoping, too, like just the scheme in general – it's going to be a lot better next season. And when you have like a running quarterback, it actually helps your offensive line too yeah. because it, it makes their job at times a little bit easier when you're getting ahead of the chains and it's like, oh, hey, look, it's second and five. We can do basically everything we want to do from a playbook mm-hmm. standpoint. Like it just makes it so much better. So I'm really getting intrigued by the Jaden Daniels situation. Like I really am. Are you are you with Lamar Jackson losing once again after only one win? Are you at all worried about how these running quarterbacks do in the postseason in terms of like, you know, as much has been made when they fall behind, that's it kind of thing. And obviously they haven't had that much success. Like Cam Newton went to one Super Bowl. Beyond that, yeah. I can't think of much. Yeah, well, Lamar, I mean, I think that's an individual thing, right? I feel mm-hmm. like I, I don't know what they did in the second. I'm still trying to figure it out. They like, fumbled they twice have- in the red zone. They threw a pick in the red zone and fumbled on the goal line. Right, right. They're, certainly, like, they made some critical mistakes, and Lamar did throw in the football. But wasn't it weird to you that they only, like, what was the, how many rushes did the running backs yeah. have? They only no, that, had, it, I heard. You're right. They were not down by very many points early on. They just completely abandoned the run, it felt like. Yeah, this was basically the best running team of the NFL this past they season. Were. Or one of the best, as I mentioned earlier. But if you look at it in that game, so if you just take the running backs, Gus Edwards had three carries. That's crazy. Zay, uh, Zay Flowers had two, who's a receiver. And Justice Hill had three. So their running backs only had six carries, which is kind of wild. So yeah. just get this is just a digression from the Lamar thing. I, they lost their mind. Like, I don't know why they did that. They did. Why, why did they? Yeah, they kind of Because out. the Chiefs are good against the run. They just decided, hey, we're really good against the run. We're going to do something else. But... I, to answer your original question, I think Lamar, that's an individual case, right? Like where he's got to prove himself in the postseason. I think it's fair criticism. I'm just saying, like, I don't know if that immediately relates to Jaden Daniels because what we've seen from Jaden Daniels at the collegiate level, significantly better passer than Lamar was at the college level. Lamar was really good, mm-hmm. but Jaden Daniels' numbers, and I know it's years later, but Jaden Daniels' numbers are way better. I did this thing, like, I don't know, probably a month ago when I was starting to really fall for Jaden Daniels, was he had, he was the best deep passer in 
yeah, college right. football last year. His numbers were incredible. So I'm just excited they're going to get a quarterback, man. I heard Me Daniel too, my... Jeremiah today. He was doing the uh-huh. the uh, what's the Senior Bowl, right? NFL Network's like live at the Senior Bowl, and he was saying he'd be shocked if the Patriots don't take a quarterback at number three. Which this is a draft analyst. I would be too. Like if they don't, if they don't, I may switch teams. Okay? <laughs> I'm with you, Brian. I'm with you. I I think also uh, what's it called? Them hiring Dan Quinn. It kind of tells me. It's going to be like business as usual with the commanders, which to me tells me they're going to go for the classic traditional uh, Drake May, I feel like, quarterback at two, which means, I think, Daniel Severe at three, which I think is the more exciting pick. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I think he... And I mentioned, too, like, if you just think about the the star power he could have. Like, right now, yeah, Tatum and Pasta are the two biggest stars in this town. And I would put Jalen as number three. Yeah, like, if you look at the Red Sox, who's really a star on that team? Devers? I mean, Devers Not completely really. refuses to be a star. He's, like, totally uninterested in having a presence in Boston, which is too bad. Yeah, and, like, I understand that he won a World Series when he was a young kid. He had a huge home run off Justin Verlander. But it's like, oh, yeah. when it's become his team, he hasn't really been able to carry that team. And I feel like there's been some unprofessionalism with the physique and the lack of concentration defensively. Right. That's right. a big issue. Like, you're good enough to be... At least an average defensive player, and we saw you're it. bad. Right? We saw so, it two years ago. Yeah, so I, I would put those three guys. Like it's really Tatum, Jalen, and Pasta. And I would even say right at this moment, Porzingis is a bigger star yeah. than Devers because we look at it as like Porzingis could be the missing piece to win a championship. So and a lot of the Celtics, like Derek White, to me is a bigger star in this town right now than Raphael Devers, and that's more an indictment on the Red Sox, and it is Raffi. Like, when I said Raffi originally, like, those guys are just way bigger stars. They deserve it when we're talking about Pasta, Tatum, and Jalen yeah, Brown. But, yes, but Raffi should be right there after yeah, them, but he's not because of what's going on with that organization and how they just don't really care. So that's part uh, of the reason that he's not there. And there's no Patriot, right, because you don't have the quarterback yet. No, so that means Jaden Daniels could instantly become, like, right there. With those guys is the biggest look at it. I mean, look at Houston right now. They have a bunch of guys yeah. that have won a World Series, like multiple World Series, right? I mean, you think about El Tuve, Bregman, those guys are massive stars. Elvarez now is a massive star. CJ Stroud's right there. Like CJ Stroud's right there with those guys in terms of the star power. Yeah. I would argue he's bigger than and obviously it's a football town. I lived there for five years, but you think about Shengun, like massive star for the Rockets right now in terms of he's a really good player. But it's not even close to C.J. Stroud. No, I mean, I think it's it's built into the quarterback position. So I agree that Daniels, you know, it's, it's tailor-made for him if he comes in and plays well. And we, we want to love our quarterback, especially in New England. So I hear you on that. Um, we get a jersey. I think if they if they draft him, I think the better jersey to get would be the LSU jersey. Because I've told oh, you how much I hate the— cool. Yeah, I've told you how much I hate the Patriots uniforms. Like, that would be a cool look at the game. Although, That's like, not bad. you kind of wouldn't— you wouldn't really blend in with the crowd. Maybe you want to stick out, right? Maybe you want to stick out and you get the LSU jersey. I, I think that's a good move. Those are great looking jerseys. We've we've talked at length about the Pats ones. So uh, you might be on something. I might be uh, looking up some some LSU jerseys sooner than later. I just say one last thought, Brian, on your uh, Alex Gore might be out of town thing is I read this article by our pal uh, Julian McWilliams yesterday. The title is, uh, with starting pitching a question mark, the Sox will lean heavily on the bullpen. <laughs> I'm sure that's... Bound to drive Cora crazy. That seems like his number one pet peeve is how they, you know, what was it? By July, they only had three starters left. 
And it's like, it takes years off your life, it feels like, as a manager, having to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, Giolito's going to have to give him seven every time he pitches. Like, him and Pavetta are going to have to give him, like, six, seven innings every time they pitch this year. And Bayo. I mean, I guess you have three yeah, guys that yeah. hypothetically could give you length this year. When we're talking about... Now, Bayo's going to do some work on his... Against lefties. That's something that he's going to have to work on. Um, and he's going to have to work on his fastball because it got hit at the end of the season. But I, I really like Bayo. Though, and... He's kind of got that, and we'll see. I mean, it's only year one of being a major league pitcher, but he seems like he has, he has sort of like the easy heat. So mm-hmm. like that, like it doesn't feel like he has to put a lot of effort into it, which makes you, even though like he's not a big guy, and I'm not comparing the players, obviously, but Pedro wasn't a big guy, but he was super durable because it was easy for him to throw. It just feels like Bayo has one of those arms where you think about some of these guys like that always get hurt, like Nate Evaldi, great Bale. pitcher, obviously, just won the World Series sale. But, like, those guys are max effort, right? I mean, Nate Evaldi's grunting every time he throws the ball, right? And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's throwing 100 miles an hour. You yeah. get it. But it feels like – so I guess you could have three guys. And then after that, we'll see who else is in the rotation there for them. But I just cannot believe we're going to do another year of, like, maybe Tanner Houck, maybe Garrett Whitlock. Like, guys, come on. We, we tried that. It didn't work. If they start Whitlock, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. I, I hear they are, right? Aren't they going to stretch him out again? I guess we'll see in spring training. Ugh. Who knows? All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, Enter the Kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.